0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants,
1: not of Reuters News. Activist investor David Einhorn has some big ideas about General Motors. President Trump's immigration policy promises to make Canada great again. And Republicans trying to rewrite the tax code will have their work cut out. These are the topics for discussion on this week's edition of The Views Room, a conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba. I'm at the control solo this week because Anthony Curry is away on spring break. So let's first turn to politics and some of the ramifications about Donald Trump's immigration strategy. Joining me on the phone from Washington is Gina Chan. Hello, Gina. Hi, guys. And we also have live in the studio, Kate Duguid. Hey, Kate. Hi, how are you? I am doing okay. So thank you both for joining me. Okay, so both of you wrote recently about the vulnerability of the H-1B visas under the Trump administration. And these are passes that let skilled workers come to the United States for jobs. Um, And it's usually uh, the technology sector uses these passes and visas quite a bit. Um, Kate, you took a look at this. Uh, Gina, you were also uh, um, involved what, what's going on? What's at risk here? And, and what does this immigration um, policy kind of have to do with the H-1B visas?
0: The Trump administration has famously said that they will build a wall on the Mexican border, that they're going to deport um, tons of undocumented immigrants. Um, but it seems like there's also going to be a squeeze at the, at the top of the skills range um, on immigrants coming into the United States. So um, both President Trump... And Attorney General Jeff Sessions have expressed interest in reforming the H-1B visa program. Um, And the first step was taken um, in March. um, And the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Office said that they would eliminate the fast track option. Okay. So um, what that means is um, basically like. Companies used to be able to pay for an expedited processing for these um, for these visas, so they they could pay an extra fee, and in two weeks time they would get an answer, and so they were able to staff up projects quickly. Okay, and so um, and and that's been eliminated, and so uh, it's not a huge change, um, but it do, it will make it harder for companies to um, staff up projects, as I said. And it also is sort of um, a message to these big tech and banking companies that, that use the system. They can't necessarily rely on the program.
1: Right. So basically, it, it, a lot of tech, Silicon Valley uh, utilizes this is a big deal for, for Silicon Valley companies. Um, And and the idea is that, okay, we're looking for skilled workers. We need, say, engineers, or we need people that are coding. We can't find enough people here in the United States, so we will look elsewhere and abroad, Asia, India, what have you. And so the idea is that they'll come here, they can work for, you know, a a certain amount of time, and then they go back. Can you just kind of explain a little more about getting rid of the fast-track process? Um, It it sounds like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's just inconvenient. But these companies, usually they have to staff up. Quickly, is that is that the case? And like, how how much longer like would they have to wait for these things to come avail- Absolutely.
0: available? Absolutely. So it's it's a question of two weeks versus six months. Oh wow, that's um, huge. So, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, as far as I understand, companies like you know um, Intel and Morgan Stanley, you know the, the sort of companies that really do use a lot of these visas, um, n- nearly a hundred percent of their applications are fast tracked. Okay. Um, And so because you don't want to keep people keep uh, like waiting in limbo. Right. Right. Um, You're trying to attract the best and brightest to the United States and you're not going to want to keep those people waiting.
1: Okay, so this is all going on. And and Canada, basically, is sitting here looking at this and saying, wait a minute, there is an opportunity for us here. Like what what the Canadians, what can they gain from this?
2: Yeah, well, the interesting thing is in President Trump's first address to Congress in late February, he praised uh, the Canadian immigration system, which is based on a merit system where they assign points to immigrant applicants based on sort of their work experience, their education, their language abilities, and, and other factors. And uh, that's actually attracted a lot of uh, people who would actually fall under the H-1B category in the U.S. in terms of being highly skilled and and having uh, abilities that are perhaps difficult to find um, in Canada as it has been in the U.S. So it's interesting that he praised that when it seems like what his own goals are actually the opposite in terms of not wanting more foreign workers to come to the U.S. But as you say, uh, Canada is seeing opportunities in this and they actually announced uh, several programs to attract more overseas talent, and that actually includes H-1B visa holders, as you can imagine, those are um, would be the easiest to just move from, from the U.S. to Canada. So they're launching a program in June that would facilitate faster access, which actually includes a two-week standard for processing work permit applications, which is sort of similar to the fast-track process uh, in the U.S. for the H-1B visas which as kate mentioned um is being halted at least temporarily
1: um so there's one silicon valley company that's already responded to uh possibly the the fact that they can't get these visas um as quickly as they had once hoped kate why don't you explain what this means for uh you know what this company is doing and and you know how this impacts uh canada too
0: Sure. So uh, Y Combinator is a um, Silicon Valley startup incubator. And so they provide seed funding to startups. Y Combinator has said that because of their concerns about uh, potential applicants' uh, capacity to get visas, they will be hosting their interview process in Vancouver. um, And that they're also exploring the possibility of having people in the program work remotely.
1: Oh, so, so basically they're saying, hey, look, we're just going to set up shop in Canada. We're going to have some remote offices exactly. in Canada exactly. and make this easier for us. Yeah. Okay, so, um, all right, so Gina, you also kind of get into the population uh, issue here and, and that the, the reason for that these visas exist in the first place is because uh, in the U- United States that the population is aging, um, there are not enough young, skilled workers, uh, you know, what? what's the trend? What do you see, and, and how is that going to, you know, impact, you know, things, in, you know, 10, 20 years from now?
2: Sure. Well, the, the baby boomers are retiring in record numbers. Um, by 2035, according to a new Pew study, about um, 8 million uh, baby boomers will have left the workforce. So you really need um, a, a slew of... Uh, workers to come in to replace them, and um, the birth rates in the U.S. are down, and so you really need to look uh, to outsiders to replace them, and that's really going to come from immigrants. And if and if it doesn't, there's just going to be labor shortages. I mean, we're already seeing it, uh, whether it's both on the skilled worker side or on. the the lower um, skilled worker side as well, where you're seeing American farms and and agricultural companies also facing shortages as well.
1: We'd be remiss in not bringing this up as well, uh, because this is another signature policy under um, President Donald Trump that failed. Um, Earlier was uh, Republicans basically couldn't find the votes to repeal Obamacare. So Gina, this has a, a huge impact, not just on the fact that they couldn't pass one of their signature things that they were trying to do. But also, like, what does that mean going forward for other uh, initiatives, including the tax reform and, and, and Trump's, you know, basic promise to try and rewrite the tax code um, to favor corporate America? What does this mean? Like the fact that, that this already failed, one thing failed. What does this bode for tax reform?
2: Yeah, well it definitely makes it a lot harder both sort of optically and politically because obviously a lot of um, political capital was spent trying to uh, whip up the votes for the repeal effort. Um, this is something that Republicans had uh, promised to do for about seven years now and the fact that they couldn't come up with the plan that their own um, party could agree upon is doesn't bode well for the tax reform effort. But it also affects it sort of substantively in terms of uh, they, they're really hoping that getting rid of the Obamacare subsidies would actually help um, on the tax reform front in terms of reducing the deficit and allowing them then to... Make bigger cuts to both the corporate and uh, personal income tax rate, and now that that's uh, not going to happen, they are really going to have to look at other ways to offset some of the loss of revenue that uh, the tax cuts would um, would cause, and they then hit upon certain Senate rules that really uh, limit the. Um, the effect that um, any sort of tax reform plan can have on uh, growing the deficit.
1: Okay, so this is this is a rule that was uh, uh, named for uh, Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia, right, in 1985. How does this thing work?
2: Yeah, so it, it's basically sort of a procedural matter um, because a lot of these sort of tough pieces of legislation get through including actually the the Obamacare Act, um, the original namesake, uh, large parts of that went under through the um, budget reconciliation process. Now that allows the senate to basically bypass the filibuster threat so that you only need a simple majority which is 51 um senators to approve a bill but if you want to go through that process um, and to ensure that it's not abused and that it actually um, does pertain to things that affect the budget uh, as you said senator bird back in the day um, implemented this rule that is named after him and has been in place ever since where uh, for a 10- year period which is basically the the budget window and, and how they plan for these things that it cannot uh, increase the deficit beyond that. so if you're looking to make you know major tax cuts and you're not looking um, you don't have enough things that offset it on the other side of the ledger, then you're you're really limited in what you can do on um, the tax reform front. So just uh,
1: stepping back for a second, I mean, wh- one of the reasons why uh, the Republicans couldn't uh, repeal Obamacare is because there were just factions within the Republican Party that wanted different things. So it was sort of exposed, I mean, some serious rifts within the party itself. Um, tax reform seems like it's one of those things that they could have a common ground and common thinking on. Um but yet, it's been very difficult. I think. I mean, it's been decades since they've been trying to rewrite this tax code, if that's correct. Um, aside from the from the Bird Rule, is it? Are there any sort of ideological um, differences that could also prevent this from happening, or are they more kind of aligned on
2: how they see uh, tax cuts? Yeah, I mean. Theoretically, sort of the idea of tax cuts, I think, you know, a lot of people, including uh, those in the Democratic Party, would favor. Um, The problem is that, you know, as as is always in Washington, the devil's in the details. And there is, even within the Republican Party, an ideological split about, you know, whether um, tax cuts should become um, revenue neutral and the fact that you sort of, if you do, again, one thing on one side of the ledger, you balance it with doing something else on the other side. Um, There are fiscal conservatives, including some of the ones who actually stopped the Obamacare repeal effort. Uh, do believe that um, anything that's done on the tax front should not um, have a a big increase or a major impact on the deficit. I think the White House and President Trump himself has been um, more lax about that, where they're talk about, uh, you know, basically you need to, to, to spend money to make money in the end and basically saying, well, if you do these tax cuts, it will promote growth and then that will actually bring in more money into government coffers. And, you know, obviously some people think that's a stretch, but that, that is a bit of a divide. And so I think you're gonna see um, this be even more complicated, frankly, than the Obamacare repeal. And it's why we haven't seen major tax reforms since 1986 under President Ronald Reagan.
1: Okay, well then. So there's going to be more complexity on the uh, on the forefront. Like, who knew? Um, Gina, thank you for dialing in. And Kate, thanks for uh, popping up. Thanks so much. David Einhorn, the hedge fund manager who runs Greenlight Capital, is taking a play that he tried out on Apple that didn't work out so well for Apple. Um, he's trying to see if he can make it stick at GM. So joining me here to discuss this is Breaking View's associate editor, Tom Berkeley. Tom, welcome. Hi, Jen. So this is the latest from David Einhorn. He came out yesterday uh, ad- agitating, essentially, for General Motors to have two classes of stock. Is that correct?
3: It is correct. And basically, Einhorn has been pushing this idea in private with GM, with Mary Barra, and with the board. Uh, for a number of months Uh, the motivation here and that's why he got such a hearing because it's shared by much of the GM brass is the dissatisfaction of the level of the stock it it trades it has the lowest PE of any stock in the S&P 500 but it's
1: been doing quite well right well it's done well over the
3: past 12 months Uh, it's it's outdone the S&P index over the past 12 months a lot of that, though, the bulk of it, is just the post-election jump. Okay. So. Um,
1: so it's undervalued, basically. It's basically. still undervalued.
3: It's still got this huge discount to the market in terms of how you value the future earnings. Okay. Um, and I think, largely, or a good part of it is, we're in a very mature uh, cycle for the auto market. We sales have been running at near record levels, above more than 17 million a year for the past uh, two and a bit years. Uh, the overall recovery seems to be, you know, it's, it's about eight years old, and it's unclear how much longer that's going to go. This is a very cyclical business. When the downturn comes and you've got a lot of cars out there, you've got uh, auto debt is at uh, record levels. Um, if a downturn comes, it's uh, you know it, it could be pretty uh, pretty harsh for these folks.
1: Okay, so so basically, let's let's kind of take us through exactly what he wants to do here because it seems very unusual. So he wants uh, to uh, he wants GM to issue another class of stock that's basically that gives out a, that's a dividend related type of uh, uh, stock or share or like he, what is he, ca- exactly? he calls it a
3: dividend, a dividend share, and basically, it's going to get the current GM dividend, which is a fifty-two cents a year, okay. in perpetuity. It's effectively a preferred share by another name. Oh, I see. So, so, so
1: it protects uh, the shareholder if if GM says we're going to cut the dividend or we're going to just stop the dividend for a, a period of time. This this class of stock would still be getting a dividend. Is that well, the this idea? is the nub
3: of it. I mean, you know, so Einhorn says, look, they're co- they easily come cover the dividend now. Uh, they grew the dividend by double digits last year. Uh, the business is is you know the cash flow, their profitability is, is really strong. So there's really no threat to the dividend. But the company and the credit rating agencies as well say, look, you're you're trying to you're trying to tie their hands. You're saying if a downturn comes, you know, this this is going to be off the table. The dividend is sacrosanct. It's, you know, it's effectively a preferred share. It's effectively, you know, uh, you know, like a debt hybrid. So that would reduce the company's financial flexibility in a downturn. And that's really why, a big reason why the company's balked and having you know Moody's and S&P come out and say this would be credit negative, look, this is a company that you know died and was reborn right. uh, in this 2009, 2009 2010. The, uh, it was brought back with public table. money. They yeah. went to, went through bankruptcy. Uh, you know, you know, it, it's thriving now. But you know, we've seen when downturns hit the auto industry, they tend to hit hard. And uh, GM only has a you know bottom level investment grade rating. If they were to lose investment grade rating, that would hurt their ability. Um, you know, to finance stock. Uh, to, I'm sorry, to finance car purchases, and would be a you know a severe competitive disadvantage.
1: Right, and so it's not only that the cyclical downturn that we're talking about here either is that there there are new and, um, competitors coming to the market. Tesla, I guess, is, is is probably a very good example. And you know, recently, Tencent uh, chi- in China decided to make a, an investment in in um, Tesla. So, uh, but Tesla's valued at a completely different, um, uh, a co- completely different multiple. It's looked it's off just, the charts, just off the charts, right? <laughs> exactly. So, and so, if I'm, you know, I'm sure David Einhorn sitting here thinking, like, wait a minute, like, how come, you know, the, the yeah. GM isn't, you know, getting some of this? I mean, why do you think that is?
3: So you look at the two companies. Tesla makes last year, just over 76,000 cars, GM made nearly 10 million. Completely different orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's huge. But, uh, you know, Elon Musk is promising to disrupt the industry. He's going to, he's on track, hopefully, to launch the uh, the Model 3 this year, which is going to be priced for, uh, you know, the mid-market. It's going to be a classic sedan. It's not, it's, it's trying to take on Um, you know, GM and other mass market makers, um, you know, where they earn a lot of their big profits. So, you know, that's built into his stock price. And, you know, it it is what the market is. It doesn't really help GM to say, you know, we should be valued much higher. They've got to go out and earn it. And right now, investors simply don't trust the sustainability or they have doubts about the sustainability of the profitability of GM. So even with a, a, you know, 4% 4% plus dividend yield. I mean, you buy GM stock, it's going to return to you far more than a U.S. Uh, treasury bond. Um, you know, it's 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 not really uh, moving too many buyers off the sidelines.
1: Yeah. So, um, Ihorn tried this, what, about five years ago with Apple as well, right? That, he, he did. He, he so, like, he wanted
3: them to issue a, a preferred share. Which,
1: if you think if any company could do it, you know, well... Mm, Possibly Apple could do it. And and that didn't work, right? That it, effort. It
3: didn't. I mean, the goal there was slightly different. You had Apple sitting on this huge cash pile, right. much of it offshore. How do you unlock the value of yeah. that? Uh, this was Einhorn's idea. You know, eventually there was a lot of pressure. Carl Icahn got in there. And, um, you know, Apple did big buybacks. So, you know, it came out differently. Uh, this, is, this is different. GM... Um, Right now, they're they're you know they're they're humming along very nicely, but uh, you know it's not a company with Apple's uh, financial strength and you know record of success. Um, the rearview mirror it's, it's not very far away from from bankruptcy. So um, I think constraining their financial flexibility is something that the company is going to be reluctant to do.
1: All right, Tom, thanks for that. I know you'll be following it in the future. Thanks for joining me in the views room. You bet. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Kate Duguid, Gina Chan, and Tom Berkeley. Thanks to our producers, Adam Wieson and Andrew D'Antonio. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And do please share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another edition of Views Room, and thanks for joining us.